Hi, everyone. This is Todd Hargrove at the Better Movement Podcast. My guest today is Tom Jessen. Tom is a physiotherapist and author of two excellent books related to nerve root pain. The first is Sciatica, The Clinician's Guide, and he recently finished up the second one called Cauda Echina, The MSK Clinician's Guide. And he also writes a newsletter on nerve root pain at Substack, which I recommend. Tom's writing is very, very good. It's well-researched. It's easy to read. It respects the complexity of the subject matter. It's exactly what I strive to do myself. In this interview, we talked about everything that Tom has learned about sciatica, uh, including the difference between referred pain, radicular pain, and radiculopathy, the anatomy of the nerve root, the different ways the nerve root can become irritated. We talked about disc herniations and whether size matters and the different types of disc herniations, how discs can heal over time. And we talked about how to prevent and treat, uh, how to prevent and treat sciatica. Uh, so very recommended if you're interested in this subject. Okay, Tom Jessen, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Todd. Okay, so I've got you here because you've written two excellent books, right? You've got one about sciatica. Mm -hmm. uh, I got that recently. I got that from your uh, your digital download thing, and after I got it, I got an email that said you've got sciatica. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe maybe you should change the way that works. Anyway, it's a great book, and then you've got the other one on Kata Akina, which I haven't yep. read yet. But congratulations on both of those. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, am I, are we like on a level pegging now for number of books written? I think you number of books written. We, we're, we're, we're tied at two. Yeah. Okay. But well, I'm got, working on another one soon, Todd. So you have to. Well, I've, I'm two and a half really. So I don't know. I don't think that counts until it, until it's published. So are you, are you two and a half too? Um, two and one fifth. Yeah. Two and so, one fifth. Yeah. The sciatica one is, as you know, about kind of the mechanisms of sciatica. Um, and now I have to write about assessment and treatment, which is much more difficult as you can imagine. Oh, good. Well, we'll get into that a little bit. So I want to talk with you, as you know, mostly about the first book, the sciatica. I want to congratulate you on that second book. And I want to ask, uh, what's it, tell us about your background, your educational and professional background. Yeah. Okay. So I'm a physi physiotherapist from uh, Newcastle in the north of England. Um, and I uh, mostly from musculoskeletal background. So I've had a bit of experience in them, like specialized pain service, um, but mostly working out of a GP practice in the north of England. People come in bad back, bad, bad knee, bad neck, um, and I try and help them out. Um, but I'm talking to you, as you know, from Houston now. Um, so my uh, wife is American and I moved to be with her. Um, so I've actually been in the States since just before COVID, which is over two years, isn't it now? Uh, well over two years. So I have this kind of funny career where I left my practice in England um, and came to the States just before COVID, which really derailed my attempts to practice here, um, as well as some visa issues. Like there's always visa issues, of course. Um, so that's kind of how I ended up writing these books. I was like, well, this isn't going anywhere. And I'm just sitting at home waiting for paperwork to clear. So, well, let me try and do a bit of research, do a bit of writing. And I ended up um, in these two books. And now 
it's kind of when people ask me what I do, I tend to say that I'm a writer, which is very pretentious, but um, I feel bad saying I'm a physiotherapist now because it's been, like I say, over two years since I saw a patient. Yeah, yeah. I, I went through the same thing myself. I was, you know, doing some manual and movement therapy. I'm doing some writing. At some point, I'm like, well, I'm really kind of doing more writing. So I, I guess I'm a writer. So, yeah. you know, you meet people at a cocktail party. So, sometimes I'd say I'm a writer, but it doesn't yeah. it really doesn't doesn't sound quite right to me. Well, anyway, how'd you, what's your background with writing? Why did you decide to do it? I mean, I know there was the practicality of not having other stuff to do, but do, do you have much background in this? I mean, you're really good at it. Thank you. That's kind of you to say. I mean, I think, um, no, not professionally. Um, I did, I'm probably, uh, well, I did a history degree before I did physio. So I'm, I'm kind of used to sitting on my ass and reading and writing and typing. Um, and um, I sort of build up a tolerance to that. Um, and uh, so I think, if anything, that's kind of the only thing. Well, while I was a student, I um, wrote a few blogs and they were like reasonably popular. Um, and while I was practicing, you know, I kept blogging. Um, but there was never any intention behind it. And it was never like supposed to be a professional thing. There was never any particular reason to do it. Um, and I think it just, um, so no, the answer is no, no particular professional background at all. Um, so I've had to kind of work it out myself, um, even like kind of the publishing side of things. I mean, I, do, I know you and I could probably nerd out for like much longer than your audience wants us to about how to write and then how to get things published. But um, basically just worked it all out myself. Yeah. Well, how did you, uh, I mean, you write like someone who appreciates the fact that it's very difficult to acquire accurate knowledge. And that's kind of, and I say that kind of like, uh, you know, it's kind of a profound thing, really. I mean, I was quite old and quite well educated before I feel like I really appreciated that myself. And I don't know, just kind of tell my own story. I remember in like the early 2000s, I was really studying a lot about nutrition. I was in reading all the nutrition blogs and I was into it and and I thought I knew a lot and I was probably annoying a lot of my people with confident, my friends with like confident statements about this is the right thing to eat and that's the wrong thing to eat. Uh, but at some point I had kind of like what felt like to me was a revelation was that, man, a lot of this, you know, science is kind of like built on a house of cards. And if you look at it from a different perspective, so many things that I thought were totally certain are kind of falling apart. And that really kind of left a mark on me that was there when I when I started writing about this pain kind of stuff. Mm. But what, when did you come to appreciate this myself? Because I can tell from your writing that, you know, the respect for the difficulty of acquiring knowledge is there. I think the, there's three things that come to mind. One is just like the natural kind of modesty or like fear putting yourself out there as an expert that you have when you're an amateur, like I'm an amateur writer and and I'm I'm writing about this complex stuff. Uh, So you naturally fall into a kind of modesty. The the other thing is, I think it's about choosing your community wisely or kind of accidentally as I did, which is my kind of online life is Twitter. Um, And as you'll know a little bit, the kind of Twitter space for physios in the UK is ruthlessly um, critical. To a, to a fault, probably. But I think that has been ever since day one of being a physio student, really, I was kind of in that space, um, you know, reading Greg Lehman's stuff, um, listening to the Jack Chu's podcast and so on. 
Um, and there's uh, definite pros and cons to that, um, being in that environment. Um, but I think kind of always imagining those guys uh, reading over my shoulder type of thing. Um, but then the other thing, Todd, and I know you and I, I think you and I have like an overlapping interest is um, I also spend a lot of time reading what people tend to call the rationalists online. So I've been reading Scott Alexander's stuff for years now. I read uh, Yudkowsky's sequences uh, probably six or seven years ago, I think. Um, and so that's hugely influenced me, um, in terms of the kind of critical, of, I think it's a slightly, uh, it's just, you'll probably be able to frame better than me kind of their approach to things, but it, it's different to sort of the critical thinking that you might be used to, um, in kind of evidence-based medicine space where you kind of apply, you apply a skeptical eye to things and, you know, see if you, are you allowed to believe this? Um, you know, we don't want to accidentally believe the wrong thing. Um, it has to go through certain evidence-based protocols. Where is it on the pyramid and so on in the evidence-based medicine space. But then I think a certainly more interesting and to me sort of more fruitful world is the kind of the online, the less wrong rationalist community where they're kind of more about map building um, and sort of, trying on different theories and different perspectives and seeing how they work. Um, people who know what I'm trying to say will know what I'm trying to say, but I don't think I'm illustrating it very well. To <laughs> well I know what you're trying to say. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm interested in this question. It's like, and that's a really good answer because it's like you came into this ready-made environment that encourages a certain kind of thinking and, the environment that I'm talking about, which is, you know, in the early 2000s, nutrition, it really didn't have these norms about making sure that what you're saying is really, really, really rock solid. It was more of like the Wild West and people have these blogs and they're experts and nobody's really that concerned that they don't have a PhD after their name and, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, those kind of communities that have those types of norms about you know, you know, digesting knowledge and relaying it around, they, they weren't there so much. And I kind of, I kind of found them um, only after I, I had kind of like had this experience of you know, feeling like a, like a fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Luckily I wasn't writing about any of this stuff though. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, as you say, the, the word norm is, is a good is a good word. Like, what norms are you socialized to? And the first thing I ever wrote online was called Myths and Misconceptions in Physiotherapy. And it went viral as much as you can do in our little world. And right. it was a list of myths. And yeah. I wasn't so naive that I thought I knew it all. But I read it now, and it's a little bit naive. Um, but it speaks to what you're saying, which is that even as soon as I started, I was a student, I think, in the second year. I was already being socialized to be critical. Yeah. Um, and and I think to a fault in that article, I think it was a little bit, you know, we see this all the time as people hear about critical thinking and all of a sudden they, they don't allow themselves to believe anything, you know, unless they are wrong. Um, and that's probably the, where I was in there. And what I find more interesting now is to try to, I think of myself as trying to build maps of the world rather than trying to think, am I allowed to believe this or not? Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Mm -hmm. All right. So, um, you know, why sciatica? What was the, so why did you decide to write a book on that topic specifically? Uh, that was um, uh, just a sort of happy accident. I had to um, 
research it for work. My supervisor asked me to, I did a Twitter thread, which is really popular, which led to a blog post and a conference talk and all that stuff. And um, that was just that I stumbled on something that um, there was a need for, um, which is people didn't really know what was happening when the patient had back pain and it was going down their leg. I didn't know it. And I, 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 I thought everyone else knew it. <laughs> and then when I learned it and put out this Twitter thread, a lot of people said, well, actually, I didn't know that either. And um, so it, it was just one of those pure luck things that um, this is not new knowledge. Um, it's probably forgotten knowledge um, in, in a lot of ways. I think um, there are people who will have trained in the Maitland approach and the McKenzie approach who, you know, decades ago, who will have known this stuff. It's not new. But for some reason, it was sort of, probably because it's quite pathoanatomical stuff. Um, it's probably uh, found its way out of um, syllabuses in university in, in favor of more, I'm trying not to say fashionable, more fashionable stuff. No, there's tra- it's trendy to be thinking yeah. about the brain and, and uh, central factors in pain and de- be dismissing the importance of tissue damage in the body and everyone knows about those MRI studies that say that herniations don't matter. And, and now you're doing this detailed look at specific peripheral stuff with kind of a view towards, you know, specifically diagnosing these pathoanatomical problems and maybe even getting surgery. So it's, it's not that fashionable, but yeah, it's the kind of stuff that I have not paid enough attention to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's, so let's start off. Uh, first thing I read in your book was a very good discussion of the difference and some basic terminology. So the word sciatica, what exactly does that mean? How is that different from referred pain and then radicular pain? Kind of give me a broad outline on that stuff. Mm. So I guess we can start with sciatica because it is the most vague word. Um, And a lot of people say that we shouldn't even be using it. Um, Sciatica, um, I mean, the root of the word comes from ischium. So people used to think it was something to do with the hip. These days, if you ask 10 different clinicians what they mean by it, you might get 10 different answers. Some people might say, well, sciatica is ridiculous pain. Some people might say it's any pain that goes down the back of the leg. Some people might say it's any spine pain that goes down the back of the leg. So I called the book sciatica because I thought if I called it ridiculous pain and ridiculopathy, then uh, people <laughs> it might be a bit off-putting. But we don't actually use the word sciatica too much in the book because it is it's a vague word. It's like, it's really old. It's in Shakespeare, you know, it's, um, so the word sciatica is kind of a common parlance type word that means pain going down the back of the leg. Um, then we have the, the kind of the three R's referred pain, uh, ridiculous pain and radiculopathy. Referred pain is probably the most common of the three. Um, I mean, it's more, it's very common all over the body. Referred pain essentially, means that you are feeling pain in an area different to the area where the nociception or the danger messages is coming from, or you feel pain in an area different to where the injury is. Um, So for example, a paper cut would not be referred pain. You know, you feel it very specifically in the area that's being cut. Um, But if you are watching TV and someone has a heart attack, they'll clutch their left arm. um, And that's a form of referred pain. Um, Visceral, so pain from the organs like the heart, the spleen, the liver, pain does refer, right? So spleen pain often refers to the left shoulder, for example. 
Um, but then so does musculoskeletal pain. Um, you know, if you see someone you suspect has a rotator cuff problem, they often won't point to the rotator cuff. They might point sort of midway down the arm, sort of where the insertion of deltoid is. And that's just a very kind of um, run-of-the-mill type of referred pain to just a, an area a few inches away from where you suspect the problem is. Um, but then you get, um, you know, as we're talking about referred pain down the back of the leg, um, is when uh, there's a problem in the back. And, you know, as you alluded to before, people argue till the cows come home about, you know, what could be causing back pain. But, you know, if we agree for sake of argument that there's some sort of, sort of injury or nociception in the lower back, whether it's uh, from a disc or a facet joint, um, very often that causes a localized low back pain. But as most listeners will know, very often that localized low, low, low back pain also travels down the leg. Um, now, why so is that? I'm kind of the, curious. The why is that? That's, well, why do you think that is? And I, I realize this is speculation. I mean, I can imagine something with like uh, a heart attack, you know, the, maybe the nervous system isn't that good at or it doesn't expect that much nociception from the heart. So it gets confused. But from, you know, muscles and joints like a rotator cuff or the back, it should be ready to know that, that that's where it's from. So, so in my mind, referred pain is like the higher levels making a mistake about what's going on in the lower levels. So why does it make a mistake? I know maybe you don't know the answer to that, but what do you think? No, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, the, the traditional explanation is, is what's called the convergence projection theory. Um, so it's the idea that you know, let's say there's some inflammation from the facet joint in the low back. Uh, some nociception will be sent up to the dorsal horn uh, at that spinal level. But at that spinal level, the dorsal horn, there'll also be a lot of afferent inflammation from other parts of the body, including the leg. So that kind of nociception from the spine is jumbled up essentially in the dorsal horn with all the other normal information about, you know, uh, skin sensation, positional sense, temperature from the leg, it's jumbled up, sent up in one package up to the brain, and the brain produces a pain experience for the whole thing. It can't pass yeah. where the nociception is coming from and where the um, the normal messages are coming from. Um, so you get this kind of imperfect sort of localization. Um, so that's kind of the convergence projection thing is the standard explanation. I'm sure that um, you might know, and I'm sure many pain scientists will have different theories about why that is. And certainly when you get sort of central mechanisms involved, we, we know that kind of pain can spread and based on kind of central sensitization and so on, presumably that's part of it. Um, but the the key message that kind of I'm concerned about when it comes to sciatica is that this referred pain is from things like muscles, joints, ligaments, and it doesn't involve the, the nerve tissue because when we get radicular pain, which involves the nerve tissue, then we have to take a, a slightly different angle on things because you know we have to be concerned about the health of the nerve um, and so on. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a PhD in there about like why I was surprised like how hard I found it to find good explanations of referred pain because that kind of convergence projection thing feels too neat to me. Okay, so the, the messages are jumbled together and the brain can't tell the difference. It feels too neat and I'm sure there's more to it, but. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a hard question to answer. It's almost like 
you know, when you say that the, um, a mistake is being made, you're almost, you're in trib- you're attributing to kind of intentionality and intelligence mm-hmm. to the system that some people are uncomfortable with, with talking about, yeah. like, you know, yeah. on a philosophical level or something like that. Okay. So you've got the referred pain and you've got the ridiculous pain. Uh, and those are different because you're talking about nociception happening at a nerve structure versus not a nerve structure, right? But both of them cause something to be felt different from the place where the nociception is. Yeah. So and we might call both of those things sciatica. Um, yeah, we might do. I mean, like with with sciatica, I'd love to see a survey about what people mean by it. I mean, in my circles in England, when we said sciatica, we meant lumbar radicular pain. Um, I have a hunch that different professions and just different people around the world mean different things by it, which is why I try and stay away from the word. Uh, I don't want to make it a taboo or anything, but um, but I mean, uh, take it to mean lumbar radicular pain, which is you know, when one of the nerve roots are in the lumbar spine. Uh, so again, as, as listeners will know, between the spinal cord and we have peripheral nerves, there's this kind of um, slip road. I forget what you call them in America. Ram, ramps on ramps. Um, there's a connection, basically. Right. A nerve root is between the, between the spinal cord and the uh, peripheral nervous system. And when one of these nerve roots is injured, then we get uh, radicular pain in the distribution of the nerve root. So referred pain, as I was mentioning earlier, pretty common. You know, we, we see it all the time. It tends to be like that ache, deep, difficult to localize, pretty diffuse, gnawing sort of pain. Radicular pain classically is very different. It's much more severe. Um, it often comes in sudden shocks. Um, it often is accompanied by these additional feelings, so pins and needles, um, weird stuff like feeling of running water, or some, uh, spoke to someone who said it feels like they have fairy lights, um, all sorts of what I think of as like extra nervy sensations. Um, and so different to referred pain, radicular pain is classically really quite severe all the way down the leg. And so people who say they have referred pain It'll be worse in the spine. It'll be pretty bad in the buttocks, the back of the leg. And it might get past the knee, but if it does, it's probably not as bad. Whereas classic radicular pain is um, often as bad, if not worse, below the knee. Um, and, you know, just to reiterate, this is all because of an injury to the nerve root. Right, um, right. In the yeah, so... Um... And then uh, ridiculous. Well, you know, it's interesting that at this very moment, I'm having a little bit of uh, something that's mentioned in your book, which is called a, a temporary nerve conduction block. So I've got I've got pins and needles in my left uh, leg right now, as I often do during podcasts when I choose these uncomfortable chairs to sit in, and it makes it makes me want to like get up and stretch a little bit. But yeah. so what what's what's going on here? I've got some sort of compression somewhere, and temporarily now my nerve is not doing its job. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it's a common everyday experience, isn't it? So if you nerves are pretty bloodthirsty, you know, most people have heard statistics about how much oxygen the brain needs to function, and it's the same for all our peripheral nerves. Um, they need blood, the oxygen in the blood, to conduct impulses up and down. Um, so if you sit on a nerve or squash a nerve for long enough, uh, then you deprive it of oxygen, and it can't conduct any impulses up and down. 
So if you're sitting on a motor nerve, and this always happens to me, um, and, uh, you know, I'll deprive that motor, the perineal nerve typically kind of in your leg, sit on that for long enough, um, and then you can't um, uh, elevate your foot. So I'll get up and I'll have like a floppy foot. If you're sitting on a sensory nerve, then you'll get like a patch of numbness. Um, not a big problem. You get up, shake it out. Um, people with carpal tunnel syndrome describe the same thing. They'll get like progressive tingling and numbness in their hand until they shake it out, get some blood, get some oxygen to the nerve. Um, but of course, if you have uh, a more serious injury to a nerve or more prolonged pressure on the nerve, then you can't just shake it out and you start to get um, sort of lasting consequences. Um, and that is what causes um, what we call a radiculopathy. So I mentioned you get these kind of um, uh, the three R's, referred pain, radicular pain, and radiculopathy. A radiculopathy is when there's been an injury to the nerve root, which stops the function of the root. Um, so people with radiculopathy might have a patch of numbness on their leg. Um, they might have um, some weakness um, in their foot or in their knee, uh, that type of thing. Um, so those two words kind of, I wish there was, they weren't so long and I wish, I wish there was like one word, but radiculopathy and radicular pain describe um, injuries to nerve roots. Um, but one describes the pain, radicular pain right. that results. And one describes the loss of function, radiculopathy. Yeah. And you said one's kind of like a gain of function and one's a loss of function. So, uh, you know, with the radiculopathy, the nerve gets not as good at sending certain kinds of signals, but with the uh, nerves job at reporting danger signals, it gets better at that, or at least it starts doing it more than maybe we'd like it to. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So um, how does nerve, how does, what, what kind of uh, irritation to the nerve causes um, radicular pain? You talk about compression, you talk about chemical irritation. Yeah, uh, so the, the most common kind of problem, this is kind of where you get into, well, everything's very complex, of course, but the most common kind of proximal cause of uh, um, nerve root injury is a disc herniation. Um, and they seem to cause radicular pain in two ways. Uh, one is simply through um, pressure. So they'll put mechanical pressure on the nerve root. Um, and that's really an extension of what you were describing before, that if you press on a nerve for long enough, if you deprive it for oxygen of oxygen enough, then it'll stop working. Um, and if a herniation kind of will do that for long enough, then you know not only does it temporarily stop working, but it, it will permanently stop working. Um, the Schwann cells, so the kind of conducting stuff around the nerve, will start to die off. The axons, so the stuff that actually conducts the impulse, will also start to die off. Um, and you get this kind of permanent conduction block caused by um, a lack of blood, a lack of oxygen to the nerve. It's essentially being starved of oxygen. Um, and, but it's okay, probably important to say that that happens in various degrees. Um, it, you know, um, I... <laughs> I wouldn't always, or I certainly don't always picture that as being a disc herniation squashes or crushes a root. And kind of the surgical sort of papers and case studies that we have often show that really the disc herniation isn't doing much more than prodding it or crowding it out. Um, so I think that's probably an important message for patients is, is that, you know, 
we're rarely thinking about these discerniations as squashing or crushing their roots and, and ver but very often just crowding them out is enough to bother them enough over time um, that they start to lack enough oxygen to function. The other aspect of things though is that you know discerniations and many other kinds of things like infections and, and stuff also cause chemical irritation to nerve roots. Um, and that probably fills in like a, a bit of the missing picture. So as you alluded to before, you know, we know that lots of people have discerniations, lots of people have nerve root problems and don't have any pain. Um, but there is also this kind of other aspect um, on top of the pressure, which is the chemical irritation. Discerniations seem to be inherently inflammatory. Um, there's different theories about why that is. Uh, one is that just they kind of degenerate before they herniate and kind of like any degenerating part of the body, they have these inflammatory mediators in them that kick off an inflammatory reaction. The other is kind of this slightly wacky theory, but that does seem to um, still be going and is, seems to be pretty plausible, which is that the inside of a disc is foreign to the immune system. So I think, well, I believe that the inside of an eyeball is the same. It's kind of sealed off from a very early age or from like um, in a fetus. And so the immune system doesn't know about it. So when a disc herniates, that's new material for the immune system, which kicks off a, an immune inflammatory reaction. Um, but either way, disc herniations seem to cause some inflammation in the area around a nerve root. And as we kind of know from all sorts of things, ankle sprains, inflammation is painful. It makes nerves fire. It makes nerves hypersensitive. So, so one of the, I feel like I've taken a meandering answer to that. Sorry, Todd, but one of the... No, no, I like it. One of the analogies I, I sometimes use is that, you know, we we never want to throw away one or the other. So, you know, this is one of these things where people kind of get, find themselves at different extremes, but there's definitely some role for pressure in radicular pain, it seems to be an entrapment neuropathy where, you know, pressure has this role. But there's also this important aspect where the disc itself seems to introduce inflammation around the nerve root, uh, and that seems to be important too. And, and one of the analogies I use is that if you, it's a little bit like taking some chili powder and putting it on your finger and poking yourself in the eye. Um, you get that kind of poke, that pressure aspect, which seems to be important, that contact but also there's something inherently irritating and inflammatory there as well about the disc, um, you know, which helps explain why radicular pain is so viciously painful, like, right. And so many people, like you said, you can sit on a nerve and squash it and it doesn't hurt that much. Um, but radicular pain in many cases seems to be different. It's not just that kind of lazy loss of function. It's also viciously painful. And then you point out that the, uh, you know, the compression, the mechanical irritation and the chemical irritation can work together because, because mechanical irritation can create damage, which creates inflammation and inflammation can create edema, which creates more compression. And that's kind of another layer of complexity yeah. to it, right? Right. There's a lot of kind of vicious cycles in there. So if you imagine that... Um, if we take like a different example, so as people get older, they get um, kind of age-related changes, overgrowth in the bones and the ligaments, and someone might have a bit of stenosis in the foramen, so in the hole that the nerve root travels through. Um, it might be that that pressure sort of gradually is added to the nerve root, 
um, the nerve root starts to lose a bit of oxygen, maybe not work so well. But as you say, if, if that pressure is enough, then the nerve, the, the Schwann cells might start to die down. All of a sudden, we've got a form of damage. Um, you know, cells of the body are dying off. The, the, the immune system will react by sparking off some inflammation. And then that's when things might start to get much more painful. Um, so as you say, the, the two, it's a bit artificial, that separation. Um, it helps maybe to understand things, but but one can certainly um, play into the other. Yeah. So uh, we, uh, we've all kind of become familiar with all of these studies that everyone puts out in blog posts and, and tweets, and I do it myself. Oh, you know, there's another study, MRIs and asymptomatic people. You know, everyone's got, you know, nine disc herniations and there's no pain and, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, you, you point out that disc herniations are associated with more uh, back pain, especially certain kinds of disc herniations. Can you talk a little bit about those associations? Yes, this is the thing that like makes me, uh, everyone kick me out of their team. Like no one wants me on their team anymore because like I'm I'm not team brain and I'm, I'm not team uh, structuralist. <laughs> but yeah, certainly like that. This is the biggest thing. It always depends on people's starting point, like how to come at this, because it's very common now in the UK. I don't know so much about like the states, but it's very common that people receive this message that structure is practically irrelevant for pain, and then you have to kind of educate. Sounds patronizing, doesn't it? But then you have to kind of introduce this idea that um, for a start, removing uh, the offending bit of structure is a one. So removing disc herniations is one of the few effective treatments we have in musculoskeletal medicine. Um, it's not hugely effective, but like it, there's not many things you can point to where it just works. Um, and hip replacements and um, uh, microdiscectomies uh, for radicular pain or, or two of them. Um, so that's kind of one form of evidence that like that the um, the disc definitely has a role in radicular pain. Um, and then yeah, we, we see these kind of um, big epidemiological studies, as you say, which demonstrate that uh, disc problems are very common um, in people with and without pain. Uh, we're exposed to the ones that show we're not we tend to be less exposed to the ones that show there is an association between disc degeneration disc herniations and pain there's, there's like a huge I hesitate to word, use the word disinformation but there's there's a lot of kind of um, motivated sharing and tweeting out there um but basically to kind of meander again around to the answer to your question my understanding of the evidence is that it's fairly unambiguous that large disc herniations are reasonably well associated with radicular pain. And, and this is part of the problem is that there's different kinds of disc herniations. Um, there's small little molehill type things that we can call protrusions, um, which again, they're very common. Um, they sometimes cause radicular pain. They sometimes don't. And in the big, Epidemiological, epidemiological studies it's kind of a wash but then there's these big kind of um, dramatic herniations called extrusions um, which can sometimes even kind of break through the protective ligament behind the disc um, and my understanding of the evidence is that you know they are reasonably well associated with with ridiculous pain um, all these things are so complicated that it's not like a it's not like a home run, unambiguous 
association. Um, I mean, the the other thing about that is it's kind of interesting is that the the kind of at a more actually I'll leave that for now because I can feel I'm going to get into the weeds and I don't want to do that too much. I'll, I'll leave that as my answer to the question. Well, here, here's here's a question I have when you when you do the MRIs, you know we've been we've been told that getting an MRI to figure out why you're hurting is maybe not that. Uh, going to be that useful, or or even if it tells you why you're hurting, it's not going to direct treatment that well. Um, and because we find these, you know, despite the fact that there's an association between herniated discs and pain, maybe not as much as we we would expect. Uh, is that because that these MRIs aren't giving us as a good of a picture as as we might hope? In other words, are these MRIs not showing the difference very well between the molehills and the extrusions, which are much more of a problem? Or is it because they're, the structure that we can see there just isn't that important? And what's much, much more important is the inflammation or some other central factors? I think there's a little bit of everything, which is why I, I end up kind of kicked out of everyone's team. So, one thing that people, as you're saying, do forget about is, is the limitations in the MRI. And there's a lot of people who say, I haven't looked into this evidence, I must admit, but they say that um, a standing MRI, for example, might be more effective because if you put some pressure through the spine, then that herniation will kind of show it, show its head a little bit more. Um, and um, I think that the, the limitations in MRI may explain some of the lack of association we do see between structure and pain. Um, but then the other difficult thing is that um, it goes back to that kind of chili on the fingertip type thing I was saying before, is that there's this structural element of a disc herniation, but it's kind of reductive to call it a structural element because it's also this inflammatory active process. Um, and so one of the reasons I think you do see a lack of association is because we don't need the disc to squash, pin, compress, crush the nerve root for it to injure the nerve root. We need it to just be in the vicinity. I mean, it's very crowded in there and often the disc herniation is like a fat bloke trying to get in a crowded elevator. You know, it's just going to, it, you might not be touching every person in there, but he's going to make it more crowded. So it might be that a relatively small herniation crowds things out a little bit more. And then, as you say, we've got that kind of inflammatory aspect too, um, where in theory, you don't need a disc to be even contacting a nerve root if it creates an inflammatory reaction in the area. Um, I think the other part of it, and I'm really, the reason I'm hesitating is because I feel like I don't know how well this comes across as a podcast of people, someone who just wants to know what to do about sciatica, but the nerve roots are very held in place so that the lumbar nerve roots are kind of structured like, like a guy rope on a tent. If you, if you go, if you go camping and you take the kind of, the last thing you do is you pin the guy, guy ropes down and you can twang a guy rope and it doesn't move too much. And the lumbar nerve roots seem to be similarly held in place by ligaments and they're held in place towards the side of the disc. So a herniation, again, doesn't need to be particularly large to touch that nerve root and the nerve root being held in place, it can't kind of escape or anything. Um, it's just kind of there in the firing line. So 
I'm actually, I'm contradicting what I said before in some ways, and it's because I'm on neither team, and I find myself kind of a bit homeless with this. Which is, you can make a really strong argument that radicular pain is this structural process, but you can also kind of, you also want to argue against that in some ways, and emphasize that we're also talking about these kind of um, my, microscopic processes involving immune yeah. cells, immune mediators as well. Yeah. And we haven't even sure. so, we, we haven't even talked about descending inhibition um, or, or anything like that. So I mean, you could have you know a ton of nociception. You know, theoretically, you could have a lot of nociception coming from uh, a nerve root that is both chemically and mechanically irritated. And you know, maybe there's people out there that have all that nociception, but they've just got a really good descending inhibitory system, and they. Uh, they're just not feeling it. Do you think it, that's possible? For sure. I mean, and again, the the kind of uh, easy explanation for that is that even people with bad radicular pain will, will be able to be distracted, I'm sure, for a minute or two if something happens. Um, and, um, you know, I always think of a, it happens the other way around, of course. I always think of a, um, a colleague of mine who had, uh, lumbar radicular pain, uh, pretty severe, it resolved, um, and it was gone. She had no more symptoms. Um, she was a physiotherapist, and, and in England, um, most physiotherapists have to do like this on-call thing. So once a month or once every couple of months, you're on call, you might get a call anytime, day or night, and you have to go and do some respiratory stuff. Um, and it's just... Uh, most physios, it's, it's by far the worst part of their job. They don't like it. Most people become physios so they don't have to get up at three in the morning, you know. And every time she was on call, her sciatica would come back. Um, it would just return. Um, and as soon as she took off her uniform kind of at the end of her last on-call shift and went home, put away her pager, her sciatica went away. Like it was that clear cut that her stress, for want of a better word, was triggering her symptoms. Um, this is another one of these things where I find myself on both teams. I think that the we have to be clear on the one hand to kind of um, distinguish. You know, there's a, a message around low back pain at the moment, which I broadly support, which is like really tying it to psychosocial factors. But in my understanding of the evidence is that that's a great message to get out. You know, if you've got back pain, think about your sleep, think about your stress, think about your general health. But I'm a bit worried about radicular pain getting lumped in there um, and people taking that to heart a little bit too much with radicular pain because, you know, my understanding of, of the evidence is that there is a more, <laughs> I'm going to say more bio than psychosocial and we all know what a, a silly way of breaking things like that is, but there's still this bio aspect. So I'm really, really worried about kind of forgetting about that. But at the same time, you know, you do want to emphasize, there's some really interesting studies about how when, when it's sensitized, the dorsal root ganglion becomes sensitive to circulating stress hormones. So when we're stressed, all these stress hormones circulate around our body. Yeah. And there's some theories that actually the job of the dorsal root ganglion is to pick up on those hormones and um, that's why it's located outside of the central nervous system. Um, and so when someone has radicular pain, sensitive dorsal root ganglion becomes sensitive to things like stress or high blood sugars, even that type of thing. Um, 
so we get, you know, it's one of the reasons it's interesting, to be honest, is there's, there's so much to go on in, in both directions. And it really depends where someone's coming from, you know, what direction you want to go in. That makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, you've got all this information in the book and we're just, we're just, um, you know, kind of scratching the surface of all of the very interesting kind of tantalizing information that kind of makes you feel like, you know, if I could just get in there with like an x-ray or an MRI or a scalpel, you know, I could, I could fix this person the way I fix a car, you know, because there's, Mm -hmm. there really is a lot of evidence and it's very interesting evidence. And it's, it's the kind of evidence that, that uh, makes you think that you can solve a puzzle, but then of course it all starts to uh, run together and there's imperfect knowledge and all these variables interacting so dynamically that it kind of pushes you back towards that really kind of common sense approach, which is just like, hey, what's making this worse and what's making this better? And let's try to do a little bit uh, more of one and a little bit less of the other. So like with your friend, for whatever reason, stress, emotional stress is a factor and you can, for someone else, you can figure out whether it's mechanical factors and for someone else, you know, maybe it's um, inflammatory. Well, I mean, what about this and inflammation levels, do they change predictably during the day? Um, There's a lot of people, this type of pain does, does ridiculous pain change predictably during the day, you know, like better at night, better in the morning, better when you get going in the morning. I know a lot of people's back pain that have timing patterns. I think generally people say it gets worse towards the evening and at night. And I used to think that was to do with levels of inflammation. And I'm not sure because um, anymore, because... I spoke to Anina Schmidt, who, as you know, is like a superstar um, nerve pain researcher and is actually helping me to rewrite and republish this book. And she told me that was pro- I was probably overstepping um, the mark there. I, I think, as, as I remember, I, I think I claimed in the book that it was because levels of inflammation rise at night, um, which is why some people get like, if you have a cold, it generally feels better. It feels better during the day and worse at night. Um, and I, I speculated that people with ridiculous pain feel worse towards the end of the day for the same reason that she told me off. <laughs> she said it was too much speculation. But I think there's lots of reasons for that. One, one might be that with nerve pain, you get like a, a lot of uh, what you might call sort of wind up. So, um, you know, maybe if you have like a, a bit of an, a normal achy shoulder joint, you can kind of... Um, uh, change a light bulb in the morning and it might hurt for a few minutes, but then it'll die back down. Whereas with nerve pain, it seems to be a bit of a feature that you, if you wind it up, it stays wound up and then you can progressively wind it up and up. And I think that might be why a lot of people's nerve pain gets worse and worse throughout the day. Cause I think that's, a, that's kind of another, um, you know, as, as you said, it, a lot of this is just, does just return back to basics right? Like what makes it better? What makes it worse? But there are some particular considerations. And, and one, one is that for ridiculous pain, you probably do have to be a bit more cautious, uh, in, especially in the early days with treatment, because, you know, the this, this central nervous system is more sensitive to nerve injuries than it is to your normal box standard nociception. Um, so you're, you're more likely to get central sensitization because of nerve injuries. Um, 
than you are because of a bit of a shoulder joint pain or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, my understanding is that almost immediately if, if you injure a nerve, and this is all from traumatic models, so it might not apply hugely, but if you injure a peripheral nerve, then you almost immediately get central changes in the spinal cord, which contribute to central sensitization, which makes sense, right? Because it's all one cell that joins up. And so the one cell, uh, the, the one part of the cell knows what's happening in the other part. Um, so kind of often counsel a bit more caution. But again, even that depends where you're coming from, right? So some people are undercautious, some people are overcautious, difficult to give advice. Yeah. So uh, let, let's talk about uh, just passing time. So that there's a couple of reasons that just just the passage of time might we might expect that uh, that that would help. One is that the the discs that herniate can they can kind of unherniate themselves a little bit. That's not quite the right word. <laughs> and then maybe also there's there's something going on where you know when when a nerve gets insulted quickly, the whole system completely freaks out. Uh, and then maybe over time it can it can chill a little bit. But let, t- tell me about the uh, the nerve. What, what the, the herniation can it resorb? Does it? How does it change over time? Maybe for the better. Yeah. So um, I think this is an, an important angle like, to this. You know, we keep talking about inflammation as if it's a bad thing, but like evolution hasn't just given us this shitty thing that happens. <laughs> I think <laughs> it kind of did. I'll disagree with you on that, but. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's got some good things, but, uh, you know, it didn't really work out the pain part of it as well as I would have liked, but sorry to interrupt. Yeah, that was fair enough. But the the reason that we get the inflammation is that the inflammation is part of, as I understand it, the body knows, quote unquote, something's gone a bit wrong. It needs to clear it up. Part of clearing it up is degenerating the area so that it can regenerate. Degeneration proceeds to regeneration. And one of the good things that inflammation does is that it clears up a disc herniation. Um, so a disc herniates is an inflammatory reaction to the disc herniation. That inflammatory reaction contributes to pain. It injures a nerve. But the job of the inflammatory reaction is in good part to clear up the herniation. Um, and this is why some people say like the bigger the herniation, the better, because a bigger herniation causes a more acute sort of more comprehensive inflammatory reaction and then the inflammatory reaction will sort of break it down um, or yeah. sort of absorb the herniation so it doesn't like get sucked back in it, it gets cleaned up cleaned up by macrophages um and um yeah so that's why the kind of you get this weird thing where big herniations extrusions get smaller quicker um and uh little herniations so the little molehills i was talking about can actually be the more chronic kind um there's a lot of variance around that statement that's like yeah. not black and white but it's something that um people often say to patients i think it's a very reasonable thing to say is that you know you've you know if they've got an mri they can see a large herniation it's very reasonable to say to them like that's the kind of herniation that you don't want right now because it's injuring your nerve root, but it's the kind of herniation you probably do want in the long run. Because as long as everything is nothing gets worse and we'll keep an eye on you, we'll keep an eye on your nerve. That's the kind of herniation the body can take care of. Um, I had a big disc extrusion a few years ago. I haven't had an MRI again, but I would, if, if I was going to place a bet, I'd say it's probably gone by now. My symptoms are certainly gone. 
That's excellent. So what about this situation that uh, I've never had it myself, knock on wood, but you know, your back goes out, you're completely mm. fine. You pick something up, there's paralyzing pain. You can't move. People can't believe how much it hurts. And then two weeks later, they're, you know, kind of basically recovered. How, how would you interpret that? Or what's a plausible story you could tell about that? A likely story. So do the, does their back go out and do they get leg pain or just their back? Oh, uh, just in the, just in the back or in the leg. <laughs> so it, it, it's different, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is where I kind of, in terms of, so if someone bends down and their back goes out, I think. Does that make you think disc? Yeah. It makes me think it, and this is where you get in trouble because someone says, well, how can you possibly know that? And that's where we get to this thing where there's this kind of odd thing around evidence-based medicine where you're either not, you either must accept something as true or you're not even allowed to entertain the notion of it possibly being true. (laughs) You're not not sufficiently If it's it's optional, it's mandatory. And if it's, uh, yeah, what's that? Yeah, ZV Moskowitz says something about that. I forget what it is, but uh, and from so so some people there's a perfectly reasonable argument to say like you have no idea what's gone on in someone's back. Don't speculate. This is kind of um, epistemic learned helplessness. No, no, no. We're we're allowed to speculate as long as we say it's speculation. I say yeah. speculate. Well, I'm team mind. speculate. I'm team speculate. Yeah, yeah. And let's I do think it. I think that when you get, I think that that. This is something I never would have said before I read the book and I went into the discarnation literature and all that. I think that when that happens, someone's tweaked a disc in some way. And I'm glad that there's been a rapid mechanical change in the position of the disc. The nerve absolutely freaks out. Oh my God, something touched me there. (laughs) I'm not (laughs) supposed to get touched there. So I, I think if you're talking about axial back pain with no leg pain, I don't I don't think of a nerve root being involved. So it's fairly um clear. So there's some incredible studies done back from the 50s of doctors that doing what you can never do today, just opening up their patients and jiggling stuff around, or open up the patients and tying a thread around a nerve root and sewing the back up and pulling on the thread. And it's pretty unambiguous that if you pull on a nerve root, you don't get central axial back pain you get pain that starts in the buttock and then goes down the leg so unless there's leg pain you know i don't tend to think of a nerve root um which is why i asked kind of in answer to your question i think the axial back pain comes from discs a lot of the time when we're talking about that kind of really mechanical and what's generating the nociception the discs the discs don't uh don't complain right so I think my understanding, I'd be really interested to read a refutation of this, but it still seems to be, it's out of fashion now, but my understanding is that like as a disc degenerates and you get like nerve ingrowth to the outer annulus um, and that, you know, annular, so disc herniations are the end of a long, often quite slow process in my understanding. So you get like an annular fissure, which is when the, the kind of high pressured nucleus of the disc starts to nose its way through the, the tough sort of tire-like outer rings of the disc. 
And that happens very slowly. You get this kind of nucleus nosing its way through. Um, and when it finally kind of reaches the outside world, then you get that kind of extrusion herniation type thing. Um, and so I think of the herniation as often a culmination of a long process of either a disc degenerating or there's been like a trauma in the past. So this is kind of um, the uh, Adams, Dolan and Adams are kind of the key people to read on this. They think of it as being like a degenerative thing um, or something that's been triggered by a trauma or a bit of both. Um, and so, yeah, so, so I think of those kind of tweaks as often to do with the disc, but like, I don't know, like I have no idea. Um, but I think you can get onto safer ground when you get that leg pain, especially uh -huh. if it's clearly got that ridiculous quality, because then you can start this. It's fairly unambiguous that that is caused by a nerve root injury. Okay. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. No, that's it. Was, it was bad one thing, one way of looking it at is. it is there's, there's a few studies that show that um, that people who have um, kind of grumbling, uh, that grumbling back pain that you keep tweaking it and it's worse for a week or so and then it gets better, that kind of grumbles and grumbles. Often that kind of erupts into severe leg pain and the axial back pain disappears. And there's studies that show that that pattern is strongly associated with an extrusion. And the implication being that you're getting this kind of progressive, irritating disc herniation. Uh, the nucleus is kind of pushing towards the outside of the disc. It's irritating things in there just because the disc degenerated. And then all of a sudden it's kind of, it's a bit dramatic, but it's like the eruption of the volcano. It, it, it reaches the outside world. It extrudes, it knacks the uh, nerve root. But because that kind of progressive disc herniation, the process is finally finished, the back pain itself resolves. Um, uh, and you see that in the quadriquina syndrome literature as well. It's like a lot of cases of quadriquina syndrome are preceded by exactly the kind of thing you're talking about, where people say, I've had back pain for months, I've had it for years. Um, last week I bent over and put my back out. This week I bent over again and really put it out. And that's when it started going down my leg. And, that, and I, I always think of that's like a disky thing turning into a nerve root thing. That gotcha. makes sense. Gotcha. So let's I'm talk really a little bit. I'm, I'm rambling. So no, no, you, you're not. But I do want to talk a little bit about uh, what can we do to prevent this? What can we do to, to treat this? And I know that's not what your book's about. To, uh, and uh, I know there's probably no good answers aside from like have the right genetics, don't have trauma and be a healthy exercising person. But uh, what, what else what have you got? Yeah, so, well, I'm, I, I almost said I'm writing a book on this, but I have a 10 month old and another one on the way. So I don't know when it'll be finished, but this is something I'm slowly working on. And I, I hope that I'll be able to give people a more satisfying answer in the future. But in terms of prevention, um, treatment, there are specific things we can talk about. Uh, prevention, I mean, we don't know anything about prevention that isn't just general advice. Um, uh, we certainly have to, I would sort of correct the the misconception that I'm sure none of your listeners hold, which is that kind of loading and exercise is bad for the discs. Like, uh, it's good for the discs, right? It makes them strong. Yeah, yeah. They want to do stuff. I, I think, um, um, 
I think probably, you know, people who have really repetitive jobs where they're bending down, picking things up for eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, I'm open to the idea that that's definitely not, well, that's probably not good for you, but, um, you know, keep things moving. If, if things, if something happens, <laughs> you know, if your, your patient has ridiculous pain or you have ridiculous pain, um, Again, it, it depends what angle you want to come because some people will naturally be um, gung ho. So again, there's like a there's a trend um, at the moment to get spines moving ASAP if they start hurting, which again I'm generally sympathetic to. But um, the the kind of the evidence that we've had for decades that um, bad backs like movement and that you shouldn't that bed rest is bad for them we don't have that evidence at all for ridiculous pain so i think we need to kind of separate bad backs from ridiculous pain sort of nerve pain in the legs and the, so the first kind of thing we need to acknowledge is that we don't have the same evidence that just move it just get it going is good for ridiculous pain in the early days especially because as we've seen or as we talked about already Ridiculous pain is more associated with a, an actual injury than this kind of more psychosocial type of axial back pain. So I would say if you're generally the kind of clinician who wants to get your patients moving and wants to encourage them to get back to the gym, consider that it might not be a bad thing for people with acute ridiculous pain to take a week or two of rest. Um, because... You know, even if you don't believe in the structural side of things, I think that it's good not to piss off nerves when they're pissed off, not to piss them off even more, just give them a break. Um, but then in the long run, we want to argue against the idea that you need to rest that thing forever. Uh, lots of people go back to, um, you know, it, ridiculous pain is one of the worst things to have in the short term, but at the risk of... Um, being insensitive to people who do have chronic problems, I don't mean to be, it's a pretty good thing to have in the long term because it does resolve reasonably well. Um, you know, after about, I think I'm right in saying that after about a year, let me get this right, four out of five, yeah, 80% of people are pretty much free of symptoms, which is not bad really for- It's that, yeah, that's nice to know. Um, and, um, and we don't want to have any long-term restrictions on doing stuff. Um, so back to whatever they were doing in the gym. Um, so we, again, it's kind of about that balance in terms of activities. A lot of people, um, they, uh, I'm sure your listeners, I don't think particularly this would be a thing, but certainly a lot of patients, um, freeze up when they have ridiculous pain. Like, it's a really weird thing to happen. We haven't talked about that enough. Like, it's frightening. There's, it's often accompanied by extra sensations, like loss of sensation. It's often, like, much worse than any pain anyone's felt before. I've, women have told me that it's worse than childbirth. Um, it's really natural to freeze up psychologically and physically. Um, and again, in the early days, that's probably adaptive. Um, especially if you've had an acute disc herniation, maybe we don't want to get people bending and touching the toes straight away. But over time, we want to help people to kind of unfreeze a little bit. We want to reassure them that, you know, after a few weeks, it's safe to move, safe to do whatever you want. Um, and we want to help them to do that. 
things that seem very obvious to us as kind of movement nerds are not obvious to other people, right? So most people that I see or saw before I did whatever I'm doing now with ridiculous pain haven't even really tested out whether bending and touching the toes feels good or bad um, or extending feels good or bad. So, so things that we think of as basic, but I think of it as like a movement exploration session, which is one of the reasons I wanted to um, talk to you about this book I'm writing actually, Todd, is to see if you wanted to, to help me out with that chapter is, you know, help people to work out what feels good, what feels bad, if you want to call it symptom modification or whatever, because very often people haven't done that for themselves because they didn't know they were allowed to or they were, they were too worried about it. So help people to do that. Well, thanks for the invite. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> and then, you know, little obvious things like, again, we know that if we have radicular pain, uh, a slump test position hurts. So full flexion, cervical flexion, spinal flexion, and putting your leg out in front of you, pointing your toes up hurts. But a lot of people sit like that all day and don't realize they're winding up the pain and pissing it off. So teach people how to take the nerve, sciatic nerve off tension um, so that they know they have that kind of that power, basically. Um, I don't think your listeners need to hear this, but probably the, uh, the, the core stability thing is probably a, a bit of a waste of time. Um, I don't need I don't need to keep the strong yeah. posture and activate my core all day long to prevent no. a herniated disc no. and it's not really going to help once I get one right no and I think probably that message is out there especially to better movement listeners the, the, the um, listeners, what about like neurodynamics like uh you know you know lengthening the tensioners and sliders and motion is lotion and all that stuff is there is is that going to make the nerves healthier Yes, it's going to make the nerves healthier. Whether that translates to um, actual improvements in your patient's pain is another matter. So the I did a literature review of this with my colleagues Anina and Niels, and one of the things we concluded was that the neurodynamics seemed to be a bit more a bit better. But it, it's like anything, if anyone's ever done like a dive into the uh, clinical treatments for pain, everything's a little bit depressing. There's no like antibiotics for infection. This thing just works. Um, but neurodynamics seem to be a little bit better, certainly than the, the core stability spinal focus thing, which makes sense, right? Because this is a nerve injury uh, and we know that kind of training certain muscles is probably not going to stabilize the spine. And anyway, the spine's already knacked. The, the disc is already gone. <laughs> like the horse is bolted. I don't think you know, multifidus is going to save you now. Yeah. Um, but what, what I'm hoping, and again, this is something I'm like trying to work out for myself, is that we can get like an evidence-based and intellectually honest way of thinking about treatment for radicular pain as being about nerve health, which definitely, is, as you ask, includes these neurodynamics, sliders, gliders. I spoke to Dave Butler who's one of the fathers of neurodynamics. And I asked him, what are you doing these days? And he doesn't really think of it in those terms. He thinks of them as wiggles and jiggles. You know, just get these nerves moving, make sure people don't freeze up. What I do personally is I, I teach these very specific neurodynamic exercises because I find them useful for education. Like patients go, oh, so when I point my ankle up, it hurts my hamstring. Oh, okay, I get it. Um, but then I tell them it's like, 
that's like learning the scales and then over time it becomes like jazz you can do whatever feels good for you um but like i say I'm, i hope that what we'll do over time is we'll develop more of an, a way of thinking of these things about nerve health and one of the things that's biologically plausible which is a dirty word in some subjects for some circles is that it makes sense for a nerve that's been pressed a little bit deprived of oxygen is a little bit unhealthy that some kind of low-level cardiovascular type stuff would be good to it, good for it. Get the blood flowing, get the oxygen to that nerve, get it where it needs to heal. But one of the things we noted in our literature review is that that's just never been studied for ridiculous pain for any. Is this like a, like aerobic pain? exercise for ridiculous yeah. pain? We don't have for a any peripheral or... nerve any peripheral nerve problem. There's not like what you'd really love to see, which is does cycling help this more than not cycling? Um, and that's so, and that, that makes sense. You know, we know the anti-inflammatory effects of kind of low level aerobic exercise. Uh, and we know the, the potential local effects of increasing blood flow to the area. Who knows? That's a bit of a, who knows? Um, but in general, I think more than thinking about the spine and the core, we want to be thinking about nerve health. And of course, you know, that ties in with broader health and keeping things moving. Because that's another key message. Oh, I'm rambling, but like nerves like to move. But we don't think that, right? Like joints like to move. Um, muscles definitely like to move. But nerves like to move as well. You know, they're, they're stimulated by movement and they stay healthy by movement. Um, so... Well, there's there's a message that all better movement listeners can get behind. Let's um, let's figure out what uh, what you're doing next year. You're writing a book on treatment for sciatica. Yes. You're done with cardiokinic. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, what else? Um, I'd love to if I get this book done next year. I'm a full-time dad, basically. So I don't, it's, it's just, it, work is weird. I don't know how much time, but if I get this book done, then I'd love to keep writing and I'd love to keep, I'd love to help other people to write stuff. Um, I do write better than I talk. I promise your audience. I don't ramble quite as much, nearly as much when I write as when I talk. Uh, your talking is very good. Your writing is fantastic. I, I'm a huge fan. I'm a big stickler for good writing. We could do a whole nother podcast on that. I'd like to talk about, you know, sense of style and all that kind of stuff and <laughs> classic style of writing, but but, but we don't have time, maybe, maybe another time. But uh, when can we look for the next piece of writing? I know you're, uh, I know you're busy. I think the easiest way is, you know, if people want to know more about sciatica, um, go to, uh, tomjesson.com and there's like a free mini email course um and uh, the the stuff that i've tried to say today will be delivered to you more cogently in your inbox the the book that you read isn't off the market it'll be back on the market i want i'd love to say before christmas um with anina schmidt where we're kind of redoing it and making you know, a few errors i am age just helped me clean up and she's adding some stuff um and we'll be getting a paperback version so you know, if you want to make sure you don't miss it, then my Substack is tomjesson. What is it? Tomjesson.substack.com. Yes, it is. And you're also on Twitter at Thomas underscore Jesson. Okay. Uh, Tom, <laughs> thank you very much for coming on. 
thanks for having me, Todd. Uh, I appreciate you asking. And uh, yeah, I hope that was interesting to some people. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. Yeah, no, they'll like that one. They'll, they'll like that one for sure. Well, that, that's cool. Let's. Uh, I'm going to stop it there, and I'll cut and paste.